goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med sociologen Eva Illus, som jeg har været optaget af i snart mange år, fordi hun har et helt enestående interessant forskningsfelt. Illus forsker i forbindelsen mellem vores romantiske længsler, vores forestilling om den ideale kærlighed og kulturindustrien og kapitalisme. Hun er født i Marokko i 1961. Derefter flyttede hun videre med sin familie til Frankrig, hvor hun voksede op og studerede sociologi og blev optaget af den franske sociolog Pierre Bourdieu. Derefter flyttede hun til USA, hvor hun blev ansat på Princeton University. I dag bor hun i Israel, hvor hun er professor i sociologi ved Hebrew University i Jerusalem. Da hun var en ung studerende, ville Illus egentlig studere klasse. Det var det, som var populært i Paris, og det var den skole, som Pierre Bourdieu havde grundlagt. Hun ville gerne kombinere studiet af sociale klasser med kærlighed. Så rejste hun til USA, og i USA spurgte hun forskellige mennesker om, hvad der for dem var et romantisk øjeblik. Og det viste sig noget helt overraskende for Illus, som hun fortæller også fyldte hende med forfærdelse. Nemlig, at når det kom til romantisk kærlighed, var der ingen forskel på arbejderklassens billeder og overklassens billeder. Og det er jo forfærdeligt, hvis man prøver at lave en analyse, der viser forskellene mellem de forskellige sociale klasser og hvordan de objektive forskelle i penge fører til subjektive forskelle i forestillingsverdener. Men det, der slog Illus, det var, at de her områder, intimitet, romantik, kærlighed, længsel og begær, som vi regner for noget af det allermest private, som vi tænker, at det er noget af det, hvor vi virkelig træder i karakter som individuelle mennesker. Det er det, som vi regner for sandheden om os selv, og det er den slags ting, som vi nødst fortæller om os selv. Vores dybeste hemmeligheder. At det måske i virkeligheden er der, hvor vi ligner hinanden allermest. At det er der, hvor vi bliver hinandens metervare. Og det fik jeg nu til at spørge om, hvor kommer den der romantiske kærlighed egentlig fra? Hvem har formet den? Og det rejser en række andre spørgsmål, nemlig hvordan kan det være, at kvindefrigørelsen i så høj grad også har betydet mere magt til mænd? Hvordan kan det være, at kvindefrigørelsen altid har været ledsaget af kommercialiseringen af kvindegruppen? Hvordan kan det være, at hver gang der er et gære, der er blevet revet ned mellem kvinder og magthaver, så er det blevet overvældet af markeder, så mændenes blik er blevet ved med at dominere kvindenes selvopfattelse? Alle de her store ting har Eva Illus tænkt over, fortolket og studeret i 30 år. Og jeg lover, at vi kommer rundt om det hele i den samtale, der følger her. God fornøjelse. Hello, good to see you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for your interest. You know, we've been reading your books for many, many years. I'm delighted. Uh, I've been very impressed for a couple of decades now by by your analytical method because I haven't seen anyone else, at least not before you, who who combined the analysis of capitalism with our inner lives. It sort of reminds me of what you see in some literature and you see in some movies a little bit. It it reminded me a bit of when I first read uh, Michel Houellebecq because there was this very strong connection between the two. How did you originally come up with examining the relation between romantic love and capitalism? It's, uh, by the way, I mean, it's really interesting that you mentioned Michel Houellebecq because I had, I, I discovered him after I uh, started writing and thinking about these issues. And I felt 
that in fact I was trying to do sociologically what he was describing in novels. So I don't know what that says about me that I'm a Welbeckian sociologist, uh, but he's a sociologist. I feel that his novels are sociological. Um, so how did I come to this? I think, you know, I think first of all, for sociologists, uh, it's not difficult to think that very large formations like capitalism uh, really influence everything you are. That I think in a way it is what sociology is about. Only that sociologists may, I mean, I think sociology was male and romantic love was not really interesting or thought to be a part of the canon, of sociological canon. I think sociology typically was interested in institutional phenomenon like uh, marriage or divorce or immigration, um, but not in something that was defined as private and also as female, I think, uh, because everything that was um, that was gendered, I think, female gendered, had um, still has a much lower status in inside the discipline as objects of study. So my really my first intuition was that you that social class. I started my analysis of love through the prism of social class. I'm French uh, and Bourdieuian Marxist sociology is very important in France. And the first question that really interested me was the differences between upper uh, upper classes and working classes. And then when I started studying this issue in the United States for my doctorate, I was very surprised and dismayed to discover that uh, actually, people gave the same answer when I asked them, define for me what is a romantic moment. And when they define that moment, they would say things like, oh, going um, to a hut in the woods, or they would say going to a French restaurant, or they would say go dancing, or they would say travel to Mexico on the spur of the moment. It, there was no real difference between upper and uh, uh, and working classes on in their answers to the question of what is romantic. So when they gave me these answers, I tried to understand them. And in trying to understand what was common to them, I understood that what was common to them was that they all presupposed, in fact, the consumption of a leisure commodity. And that is the ways in which I started um, really um, becoming aware of the, of the connection between capitalism and, and romantic practices. It's not really something I had the intuition of. It is something that emerged from the fact of trying to understand and analyze uh, how people um, defined the category of the romantic. Um, that category is fairly new. It's not more than 150 years old. And it was entirely shaped, I think, by the leisure industries. And, and I was very curious because you were born in Morocco and then you moved to France. And I think you grew up in France, right? 
Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you went to you taught in America. And now you've been in Israel for some decades. Because and you write about capitalism in general. And when I'm here in Denmark, my wife is from Iran. When I'm here in Denmark, I feel we have a very soft welfare capitalism. You see that it can be very, very tough, but you're sheltered from it most of the time. When I'm in America, I see a totally different kind of capitalism. And when when we've been in the Middle East, a third kind of capitalism, looking at China, a fourth kind, you've seen the capitalism in different contexts. Uh, how, how did that affect your research? Actually, you know, I would have to say that when I write, I write mostly about American society. My last book, which is called Undemocratic Emotions, I mean, the emotional life of populism is based on Israel. Uh, but most of my books are really ba- uh, based on uh, American uh, sociology and American data. So um, so I write mostly about the United States, um, which doesn't mean that I don't think that the processes or the these new forms I'm describing are not pertinent to most of the world. I mean, think of St. Valentine's Day, which you know, was not celebrated 50 years ago. It has become today really a kind of global day in which you um, uh, consume and you consume and at the same time you consume in order to um, affirm and celebrate your romantic relationships in a very specific way in a form that is known to all these countries. I think that the transformation of romantic practices um, has followed, if you want, a similar grammar throughout uh, these countries, even though you you spoke previously about different forms of capitalism. I could also speak about different romantic cultures. I think that the American romantic culture and the French romantic culture or the Israeli one are quite significantly different actually. And yet you can see how these different capitalist forms and romantic traditions actually converge, as as I put it, in a common grammar of uh, consumption, um, uh, consumer and romantic practices, such as, which is mostly defined, as I said, by this idea that uh, leisure, fun, relaxation, vacation, exoticism, all of these things that actually are part of, for example, the tourist industry, um, all of these belong now to the ways in which couples um, interact with each other. So to a great extent, consumer leisure is geared to couples, but conversely, couples very much understand and experience their relationship, their bond, as the process of consuming together a leisure commodity. So um, that's um, the show. I would say there has been a convergence um, and the widespread uh, global form of um a widespread globalization of a specific consumer and romantic interaction based on consumption. 
Yeah, and I, and I must say, then when I read your books and you have these interview persons and they come from time from France, from Israel, from America, they all have experiences that are similar to experience that I see here in Denmark, especially among my kids' generations. And so, so another thing that I find very difficult is when, when you analyze capitalism and its effect on people's lives and how it constitutes the self and how the self constitutes capitalism is the question, what is the product of capitalism and what is, say, the product of the welfare state or what is the product of the family that we grew up in or what is the product of, you know, we have certain associations in civil society that are very important here that are neither market nor nor, nor the state. How do you limit capitalism in, in, in your method? So uh, you ask a difficult question, and I'm not going to be uh, to give you a very satisfactory answer. Um, I'm not going to give you a satisfactory answer for two reasons, at least. One is that my method is interpretive. Uh, so I, I think the only way you can really answer very rigorously questions of causality is by... Um, doing statistical um, uh, analysis. Um, and so so that's that's one thing. So my my approach to capitalism tries to understand thickly uh, what is capitalism, to characterize it, and then to see if these characterizations, um, emerge at some time. I try to see if there is a shift historically. And then if I am able to establish a shift historically, then I will attribute it to capitalism. And then I will also try to look for, for it in my respondents. The second reason why I cannot answer your question very well is because capitalism has become like the ocean in which we all swim. I think it's extremely difficult to separate it even from, for example, the welfare state. The welfare state itself actually follows increasingly the logic of capitalism. Uh, you know, the logic of efficiency for, and profitability uh, was far less developed uh, 60 or 80 years ago than it is today. So and techniques of management uh, that of management of and of production uh, that are developed in capitalist workplaces are then exported to the state. So this is only to say that capitalism is really the water in which we swim, and it is therefore very difficult to really isolate it. However, so a capitalism also is not only an economic organization. It is also a culture, and this point is very important. It's a culture that means it promotes a worldview, a way of um, thinking of um, human relations, of thinking of the relationship between citizens and the state. Um, and, and so I would say that I think of capitalism as having different logics uh, which run um parallel to each other, which have their own logics. Um, for example, one logic would be the logic of commodification. That is this idea that you uh, try to, to sell more and more things that were outside 
the realm of uh, commodity or money commodity production or money circulation. The, the commodification of time, of services, uh, is um, very strong characteristic of capitalism. So another uh, logic of capitalism, which is different from this one, is the logic of efficiency. That is becoming very aware that um, you need to produce and do things in a way that is highly efficient, in which the cost-benefit ratio is such that you maximize your benefit and you spend less time doing the same thing and you know so we see this logic of efficiency when corporations downsize themselves uh, we see this logic when people for example um, become very aware of the time they spend and not wasting their time so the logic of efficiency is is another way that capitalism has to transform our relationship to time uh, and to sociability. Then I would say, I would give you also another example. For example, think of branding, advertising or branding. Um, these are key tools to promote commodities, certain commodities in an arena that is very crowded with lots of commodities. Well, you can take these logics and apply them to your, to the self and see, in fact, I mean, look at a Facebook profile or a LinkedIn profile or even a Tinder profile. And in fact, you will see that the logic of advertising and branding is very much at work there. Sales people think of themselves as commodities that they need to put forward on the very crowded market. They are aware of competition with others and they try to singularize themselves. So all of these are logics that you can find objectively in the world of commodity production and which you can then also see at work in the realm of subjectivity. Um, how do I establish that it is capitalism and not the welfare state? You know, simply by... Uh, I mean, being commonsensical, uh, you know, the things I described are not characteristics of the welfare state. They are characteristics of capitalism. That's a great answer to a very difficult question. I always thought that the title of Michel Houellebecq's first novel was so good, L'extension du domaine de la lutte, <laughs> because this is the sense that you have the capitalism, the sea that's everywhere. In, in The End of Love, which is a wonderful book, and it reads like a recap of some of your earlier work and then this whole new aspect of unloving and, and, and negative relationships, you come up with the term scopic capitalism. I'm not sure I pronounced it correctly, scopic capitalism. How do you define that? So <clears throat> scopic capitalism is about um, all the industries, cultural industries, which have made the gaze central, the gaze, that is the fact that we look at something and which have made the pleasure of looking at something uh, a key way of extracting profits. And, um, and the thing which has been, I mean, the thing from which um, value has been extracted 
mostly has been the woman's body. And so scopic capitalism actually includes all the industries in which images are um, consumed. These can be movies, these can be magazines, these can be um, uh, pornography. And in fact, all of these industries, you see how central the not only the body of women, but the sexualized body of women plays a key role in uh, making it pleasurable to the eyes of the uh, viewer. So it is, and, um, and scopic capitalism extracts value, that is, makes money out of the fact that a woman is willing to show her sexual body and a, woman, and a person, another person is willing to pay to look at this body. It can be done for all kinds of reasons, by the way. For example, if you think of, I don't know, Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window, Grace Kelly appears in a series of uh, sequences in which she's dressed. She Grace Kelly herself works for a fashion magazine, if you remember. Yes. And she herself dresses extraordinarily well. And she becomes very enjoyable, for example, for the gaze, of course, of men, because uh, she's a desirable, uh, beautiful woman, but also for women as well, who can look at her fashionable dresses and use the movie almost like a fashion show or an advertising, uh, uh, or, or another advertising, in fact, for the fashion industry in general. Um, you see, so my point is that um, it's not only used for purely sexual uh, purposes, although the sexualized body, um, the sexualized body of women has enabled to promote and naturalize through different uh, uh, scopic industries, uh, the realm of fashion, of cosmetics, of dieting, of you know uh, um, surgery, of uh, cosmetic surgery. There's a large number of industries which in fact rely on the circulation of these images um, for the idea of beauty and youth to become really um, uh, established and crucial for modern people. And there is in your work, and I think you have in, in the last part of Consuming the Romantic Utopia, you refer to Max Weber and his uh, analysis of modernity, how there are always losses when you have gains. And I feel that you try not to be very normative in your analysis. So when we have the sexual revolution, there is the, the liberation element, but there's, there's also um, there, there's also the other part of it, um, this becoming object and becoming and becoming a and becoming commodity. Could you say a little bit about, about the because I feel the sexual revolution is of course very important for 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 the end of love. The ambivalence about it, on the one hand, being and and a part of the women's liberation, and on the other hand, also objectifying women. You know, I think that um, for the last maybe 150 years, I mean, I think that from from the 19th century onward, there was an increasing understanding that uh, women 
sexuality was particularly repressed. And Freud was revolutionary, not only because he conceived of um, a new category of, uh, if you want, psychic disturbance, which is the neurosis, but also because he was very instrumental in promoting the idea that a healthy self is one where uh, sexuality is emancipated and free, um, free of taboos and control and surveillance and so on and so forth. And this connected, I think, not immediately, but this connected in a way with a feminist uh, um, understanding that you needed to um, create more symmetry between men and women uh, in the sexual realm. But I think these two moments in Western culture, that is Freudianism on the one hand, and a feminist awareness that uh, women's bodies and sexuality was the site of domination and power, these two moments could really actually coalesce and lead to the sexual revolution only because, and here I am sorry to put it in a crude functionalist way, which I usually dislike, but they could coalesce only when uh, scopic capitalism made this sexuality uh, operative for, for itself. So when capitalism did that, I think, you know, by showing relentlessly images of couples uh, kissing each other, images of couples alluding to their lovemaking and, and so on and so forth, I think the sexual revolution could happen. And um, when it happened, I think many were very hopeful that it was going to solve, in fact, the problem of women's condition. But it really didn't, because when you arrive to the 1980s, 1990s, what you observe, what I observed at least, was that there was a profound asymmetry between uh, men and women in, um, in, in, in the terms of the emotional engagement in the relationship. And in fact, it is as if the sexual revolutions had in fact mostly benefited men who could then in fact, you know, be the men they had always been in a way, only without now the reprobation of the church or of families who would say, you have slept with my daughter, now you must marry her. Um, so, and in a way, what this, what I became aware of was that did, even though um, the sexual revolution enables women to have legitimately sex out uh, before marriage and outside marriage, even though it has legitimized the notion of pleasure, even though it has legitimized the idea that um, uh, men and women should be able to behave in the same way sexually without being um, stigmatized without women being stigmatized. Despite all of these, because women are overwhelmingly still defined by the, their care for others, 
And because men view sexuality as a way to affirm their masculinity and their power, you have a really uh, serious asymmetry when they approach relationship with men uh, often having more difficulties to respond to the uh, emotional needs or demands of women. So that's what I was interested in. I was interested in the autonomization of the sexual sphere. That is the fact that it becomes a sphere where you can explore, which you can explore for its own sake. It becomes disconnected to marriage. It even becomes disconnected from romantic love, from love. It is a sphere for its own sake. And yet this sphere enacts and stages the inequalities or asymmetries between men and women. I think this is such an important point. And it's been, I was born in the 70s. So I remember the 70s and I saw the makeup and, and the objectified body coming back in the 80s and 90s. And my mother, she was um, she was a suffragette and she was angry about it. She says, we're losing everything now. Uh, so And I remember this dual moment, seeing on the one hand, feminism becoming stronger, you had rights and you had equal pay. And then on the other hand, you had this very, very strong commodification and the and the consequences that, that it had. I never realized these dual moments before I read your book, actually. So that was very helpful. Another very important point that you make in the book, I, I'm, I'm switching a little bit here, Gears, but we're still in the same domain, is, is uh, about contract. Because in another part of uh, an equal society or an equal normativity, we want to be equal, is that is the ethics of consent. You can only have relationships that you consent to. And we have very strong ethics uh, of consent now, I think. But but then you say, well, well th that this is connected to the contract and that the contract works in the economic realm. It creates trust in the economic realm because you know the conditions of the contract when you make an economic contract. But when it comes to love, the conditions are very fluffy. They're very, very subjective. Can you say a little bit about this point, which I think is very important, that, that how contracts in love life undermine trust? So I was uh, trying to reflect on the fact that consent has become really uh, the main ways in which we think of the morality of heterosexual relations or, you know, actually, no, I should say sexual relations in general, but especially heterosexual relations, given that uh, men's can exercise power um, and can even, um, you know, of course, in the case of rape is a very clear area, uh, but not only rape, I mean, in fact, it, women increasingly understood that a great deal of the relationship they have with men were based more often on the men for, forcing himself or imposing his will rather than on two people agreeing to each other. So that's why I think consent has become the kind of organizing general metaphor, uh, not only metaphor, but um, literal way to, to regulate the relationship and the bond of two people. Now, I think that 
why consent, of course, is important. It is not enough, really, because um, I think that people feel that as long as they say ahead of time what they want, what they don't want, then that makes them um, ethical in a way. Um, so what I was trying to say is that these relationships, romantic relationships, are actually often fraught with an enormous amount of expectations. And because they concern the deepest, often the most important aspect of the self, you get very attached to someone, you trust someone with your soul, you uh, you can actually get seriously wounded. These relationships can seriously wound you. And I was trying to say that the ethics of consent does not address at all uh, the many forms of wounds that do not have to do with a violation of somebody else's will. There are many ways in which I can really hurt you and hurt you very badly, even though, um, uh, and, and that are, and, and that uh, even though you, um, I, I did not exactly violate uh, the consent you gave me or I gave you. And the reason is that it's extremely difficult to uh, contractualize emotions, uh, if not impossible. And so um, so, so that was one the, the first point I was trying to make. And the second point is that when we spoke about sexual freedom, we uh, because sexual freedom was predicated on getting rid of morality, of the language of morality in sexual relations, we have, uh, I think, made this domain a domain in which you can't judge how people behave. So somebody could be um, very concerned with consuming a product that has been uh, that has respected the norms of uh, organic farming or the norms of fair trade. And this man could behave in a terrible way in his sexual relations. And we would feel that the first, what this person buys is our business. We can say whether it's moral or immoral, but we wouldn't be able to say about his sexual behavior if it is moral and immoral because the realm of moral judgment in this domain seems to us limited, I mean, or or forbidden. I want to say that actually, I think we can uh, we cannot really dissociate uh, what we think or you know who a person is morally from their behavior in in sexuality. And I'm aware that when I say this, this is uh, likely to, you know, create the sense that I am trying to be restrictive or constrictive and I'm trying to deny the importance of sexual pleasure and mindless uh, 
how did Erica Young, the American writer, put it? Mindless or um, uh, zipless fox. Zipless fox. Zipless fox. So, um, which some people for I mean, for some people is very important. So I'm not trying to deny that some people like to live their sexual lives this way. I'm just simply saying it doesn't make any sense that a domain of our lives in which we are so intimately invested, in which we trust almost uh, blindly and totally somebody else, like we do in no other domain, it makes no sense that this, um, this area would remain, uh, that we would be, sorry, that we would be um, commanded not to express any moral opinion on the behavior of people in this area. That's what I was trying to say. Yes, and that is a very strong point in, in the book. Thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you so much and bye-bye. Uh, bye. Det her var min samtale med Eva Illus. Hvis man vil læse videre og fordybe sig i hendes tanker, så kan jeg anbefale den bog, der hedder Consuming the Romantic Utopia fra 1997. Det er ligesom den bog, hvor hun redegør for, hvordan vi ser den, vi elsker, som en vare, vi gerne vil forbruge. Så er der et andet hovedværk, som hedder Cold Intimacies fra 2007, som har den tiende undertitel The Making of Emotional Capitalism, som også er en helt fantastisk god bog, og det er helt klart, den er hendes bøger, der er hurtigst læst. Og så er der det, som jeg betragter som hendes hovedværk, nemlig The End of Love, fra 2021. I næste uge skal vi tale med K.U. Jin, en kinesisk økonom og forfatter, som er bosat i London og har skrevet en bog, der hedder The New China Playbook. Jins grundlæggende spørgsmål til os i Vesten er, når nu Kina er det mest spektakulære økonomiske og politiske eksperiment over det sidste halve århundrede, når nu kineserne har fundet en anden alliance mellem stat og kapitalisme, end vi har været i stand til i Vesten. Når nu kineserne har præsteret nogle fremskridt, som har løftet flere hundrede millioner mennesker ud af fattigdom. Når kineserne har udviklet en helt ny model, hvordan kan det så være, at vi overhovedet ikke er nysgerrige over for dem? Hvordan kan det være, at det eneste, vi er optaget af, det er at kritisere deres overvågningsstat, deres menneskerettighedskrænkelser og behandlingen af Uigurerne i Xinjiang-provincen. De spørgsmål rejser Kaiyu Jin i bogen The New China Playbook, som er udgangspunktet for vores samtale i næste uge. Og jeg lover, at jeg både spørger ind til, hvordan hun selv lever med de her overtrædelser, og hører, hvad det er, hun mener, vi skal lære fra Kina. Den her udsendelse var ligesom de foregående udgaver af Langsomme Samtaler, produceret af vores gode ven og kammerat Mass Adam Wiener. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber, vi høres ved igen i næste uge. 